Hello everyone and welcome back to the Scouting Guide Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to try to read all of the Merit Badge books that Scouting has to offer and talk about all things Scouting. In this episode, we're going to be continuing going over the first class rank requirements. Now, let's begin. The next section is Tools. Requirement 3A says, Discuss when you should and should not use lashings. Lashings. Use some rope to join two or more poles and you've got a lashing. Add more poles with additional lashings and you can create pioneering projects that are useful and fun. With a little time and a few materials, you might build a tripod from which to hang a lantern or a towel rack or a wash station for your camp kitchen. If you have more time and materials, you could build a dining table complete with benches, a bridge, or even a functioning merry-go-round. Whenever you build, you will have fun and gain valuable practice with knots and lashings. The language of lashing. The following terms will help you understand how to make lashings. Pole. Usually made up of wood, poles are the structural components of pioneering projects. Depending on the scale of a project, you may use something as light as a hiking stick or as sturdy as a tree trunk. A large, heavy pole is often used called a spar. Wrap. A wrap is a turn made around two or more poles to hold the poles lightly, tightly together. Most lashings require three or more wraps made tightly side by side. Frap. A frap is a turn made between two poles. It goes around the wraps to pull them together. Usually two frapping turns are made on a lashing. Outdoor ethics and pioneering. Large-scale pioneering projects require a lot of sturdy poles. To minimize your impact on the environment, use poles that come from your troop or council camp supply of building materials. If you gather natural materials, do so in a way that does no harm to the environment. For example, a landowner who is clearing out a piece of property might let your troop scavenge down down trees for use in pioneering projects. Store poles in a cool, dry place, and that could last for years. Build your projects on a durable surface, not in a fragile environment. Many footsteps in a small area could trample plants and compress soil, making it difficult for the land to recover. Use the following guidelines when you are planning on a pioneering project. Follow the principles of outdoor ethics to protect the land. Use only material approved for the project. Take everything apart when you are done and leave no evidence that you were there. Store poles so that they can be used for future pioneering projects. Coil ropes and cords and store them. Square lashings. Use the square lashings for binding together two poles that are in contact with each other and cross each other at a any angle from 45 degrees to 90 degrees. The lashing gets its name from the fact that the wrapping turns are at 90 degrees, or square, to the poles. While creating a square lashing, keep your first clove hitch in place by twisting the running end of the rope around the standing part of the few times. Caring for pioneering materials. Pioneering requires using materials that are taken from nature. Poles come from trees that have been cut down, and rope is made from plant fibers or sometimes synthetic fibers driven from soil. Keeping pioneering materials in good condition will help minimize the impact that pioneering projects have on the environment. Keep poles from rotting by storing them loosely stacked and under cover so that they will stay dry. Shave the bark off poles so that they... When they do get wet, they can dry out quickly. Poles usually rot at their ends. You can often cut the rotten parts off of an old pole and keep using the middle portion. Natural fiber ropes will grow, mold, and rot if you put them away wet. Always let rope dry before coiling it. Many synthetic ropes are sensitive to the ultraviolet rays and sunlight. Store them in a dry location away from windows. This is how you do a square lashing. 1. Place the poles in position. 2. Tie a clove hitch around the bottom pole just below the counterpiece. 
3. Make three tight wraps around both poles, going over one pole, under the other, etc. As you form the wraps, lay the pole on the outside of each previous turn around the top pole, and on the inside of each previous turn around the bottom pole. 4. Wind two wraps around the wraps, pulling the rope very tight. You may even want to put your foot on the lashing to gain more leverage as you pull. 5. Finish with a clove hitch around the top pole, snug against the lashing. Add a half hitch or two to the next for, it, for extra security. Mark 2 Square Lashing Here are the steps for an alternative to, to the square lashing. 1. Place the poles in position. 2. Fold the rope in half, placing the midpoint of the rope around the vertical pole and just under the horizontal pole. 3. Walk both ends of the rope at the same time to make three wraps around the pole. 4. Cross the rope ends between the poles in opposite directions to make two wraps around the wraps. Pull the wraps tight and lay the two rope ends in a square knot. Triangles in Pioneering Engineering and Architecture Triangles crop up everywhere in pioneering projects. Why? Because the triangle is the only shape that can't be deformed without breaking it or changing its length in one of the sides. No matter how tightly you latch a square of poles, it will inherently be unstable, and diagonal poles to create triangles in the square will become totally solid. Three important building blocks of pioneering projects are the A-trestle, X-trestle, and H-trestle. Notice how they all incorporate triangles. But triangles aren't just found in pioneering projects. Engineers and architects use them on just about every project that they design. How are the triangles used in the house shown here? Pioneering safety. Pioneering projects has a maximum height of 6 feet. Shear lashing. You can construct a sturdy triangle of an A-frame with a shear lashing at the top and a square lashing at the bottom corners. 1. Lay two spars side by side. Tie a clove hitch around one of them. Wrap the short end, the tail, around the running end to secure the clove hitch. 2. Make 5 to 10 wrapping turns around both spars. The more wraps and the tighter the wraps, the stiffer the lashing will be. 3. Take two tight frapping turns with the spars around the wraps. 4. Finish with a clove hitch on the opposite spar, being sure to lock the clove hitch tight against the wraps and fraps. 5. Shred the ends of the spars, the legs, as needed. Diagonal Lashing Use a diagonal lashing when you need to close a gap between two poles that cross but don't touch. The lashing gets its name from the fact that the wrapping turns cross the poles diagonally. 1. Tie a timber hitch around both poles and pull it snug. 2. Make three tight vertical wraps around the poles, lying the wraps neatly alongside each other. 3. Make the three horizontal wraps around three vertical wraps. 4. Go around the one of the poles and make two tight wraps between the poles. 5. Tie off the rope with the clove hitch on either pole and add a half inch or two for extra security. Tripod Lashing A close relative of the shear lashing is the tripod lashing is used to join three poles together to form a tripod. 1. Lay three poles alongside each other, making sure that the bottom ends are lined up evenly. 2. Tie a clove hitch around one of the outside poles. Wrap the short tail around the long end of the rope. 3. Wrap the rope around all three poles 6-8 to eight times, leaving the turns of rope neatly alongside one another. How stiff the tripod legs will be when they are separated depends on the number and tightness of these wrapping turns. 4. Carry the end of the rope between the middle pole and the pole with the clove hitch, and take two tight frapping turns around the wrap. Then, pull the rope straight across the center pole, not diagonally over the wraps, and take another two tight frapping turns around the wraps between the middle pole and the other outside pole. 
Five, end with a clove hitch around the outside pole, being sure to snug the clove hitch tight against the wraps and fraps. Six, stand the tripod up and spread the legs into position, crossing the outside legs under the middle pole. To make your tripod more stable, add crossbars near the bottom using square lashings. Round lashings. Round lashings can be used to join two poles together, side by side, to extend their length. You could use them to build a tall flagpole out of hiking sticks. 1. Position the poles beside each other and join them together with a clove hitch. 2. Make several very tight, neat wraps around the poles. There are no fraps in a round lashing. The wraps must do all the work, so pull them tight as you can. 3. Finish the lashing with another clove hitch around both poles. 4. Make your second round lashing further along the poles to keep them from spreading. Floor lashing. The floor lashing will tie down the top of the table, deck, or raft the floor of a climbing platform, or the walkway of a bridge. It consists of two stringers, spars, on which the platform will rest, and numerous floor poles. These steps will create a floor lashing on one side of your platform. Repeat the steps for the other side. 1. Lay the floor spars side by side on top of the stringers. The logs or poles on which your platform will rest. Tie a clove hitch around the stringer, wrapping the pole's rope's short tail around the rope's long part. 2. Starting on the inside of the stringer, bring the rope over the first floor spar. From a bright in the standing part of the rope, pull the bite bright under the stringer and cast the bite over the first floor spar on the middle on the outside of the stringer. 3. Pull the rope tight, then place a few new bites over the next floor spar on the inside, repeating step 2. Throughout the process, you are always working with the bite in the rope. Passing it over the floor spar on the inside, pulling it under the stringer, looping the bite around the floor spar on the outside, and pulling it tight as you go. The long end of the rope will always remain on the inside of the stringer. Continue until all floor spars are tightly bound to the stringer. 4. After attaching the last floor spar, finish the lashing with a clove hitch around the stringer. Lock the clove hitch tightly against the last floor spar. 5. Repeat the procedure to lash the other ends of the four spars into the other stringers. The next requirement is requirement 3B. Demonstrate tying the timber hitch and clove hitch. Timber hitch. The timber hitch is the perfect knot for use for dragging along across the ground. It is also the knot that serves a diagonal lashing. Here is how to tie a timber hitch. 1. Pass the running end of the rope around a log. 2. Place the end around the standing part of the rope, then twist the end around itself three or more times. 3. Pull the slack out of the rope or tighten the timber hitch against the log. The hitch will stay secure as long as you are pulling the rope. When you are done using the rope, the timber hitch is as easy to loosen and remove from the log. Clove hitch. Clove comes from the word cleave, meaning to hold fast. The clove hitch is used to begin and end many lashings. Here's how to do it. 1. Bring the running end of the rope over and under a pole. 2. Take the end around a second time, crossing over the first wrap to form the shape of an X. 3. Bring the rope around a third time and tuck it under the X. The ends of the rope should come out between the legs of the X. If they come out to either side of the X, you don't have a clove hitch. 4. Pull the ends of the rope to tighten the hitch. The next requirement is requirement 3C. Demonstrate tying the square, shear, and diagonal lashings by joining two or more poles or staves together. See the reading on requirement 3A. The next requirement is requirement 3D. Using lashings to make a useful camp gadget 
or a structure. Again, see requirement 3A reading to see how to do this. The next section is navigation. Requirement 4A says, use a map and a compass. Complete an orienteering course that covers at least one mile and requires measuring the height and or width of a designated items, tree, lower canyon, ditch, etc. Measuring. To measure the distance and time you travel, you always have one simple tool, yourself. With practice, you can accurately measure the distance and time in the field using nothing but your brain and your body. Measuring distances. If you know the length of your footsteps, you can measure distances just by walking. Here's a way to learn how far you go with each pace, each time your right foot hits the ground. 1. With a tape measure, mark around a 100-foot course on the ground. A distance of 100 feet on a football football field begins at the goal line and goes to 1 foot past the 33-yard hash mark. 2. Walk at your normal stride from one side of the course to the other, starting with your left foot. Count the number of times your right foot hits the ground. Step 3. Divide the total number of paces into 100, and you'll know the length of in feet of one pace. For example, if you use 25 paces to go 100 feet, then the length of each pace you take is 4 feet. If you took 20 paces, figure a length of about 5 feet per pace. To measure distances, count how many times your right foot hits the ground as you walk. Multiply that number by the length of your pace, and you'll know how far you've gone. You can also determine the distance as you go. For example, if you have a 5-foot pace, you can count like this such time each foot hits the ground in 5 and 10 and 15 and 20. Measuring Heights a tape measure is useful for measuring your own height or the height of a flagpole you've built at a campsite. But what about really tall objects like trees and towers? With a few simple techniques, you can estimate their heights. Stick method. Have a friend whose height you know stand next to a tree or another object that you want to measure. Step back and hold the straight stick up upright at arm's length in front of you. With one eye closed, sight over the stick so that the top of it appears to touch the top of your friend's head. Place your thumbnail on the stick where it seems to touch the base of the tree. 3. Move the stick up to see how many times this measurement goes onto the height of the tree. Multiply that number by your friend's height, and you will know the approximate height of the tree. For example, your friend is 5 feet tall, and his height goes into the tree 6 times. The tree is about 30 feet tall. Feeling method. To use the feeling method of measurement, back away from the object you want to measure, a flagpole, for example. 1. Hold the stick upright at arm's length. Adjust the stick so that it t its tip appears to touch the top of the flagpole while your thumb seems to be at its base. 2. Swing the stick 90 degrees to a horizontal position, tracking the same as the flagpole would if it fell to the ground. 3. Keep your thumb in line with the base of the pole and notice where the tip of the stick appears to touch the ground. Have a friend stand on the spot. Measure the distance from the point where your friend is standing to the base of the flagpole, and you'll know the flagpole's height. This is a good problem to solve by using your pace as a measuring tool. Measuring Widths Imagine that you need to find out what the width of a stream. There is no bridge and you can't wide or swim across. What would you do? You could use the stick method or the compass method to find out the stream's width. Stick method. Locate a rock or some other object in the far side of the stream. A. 2. Place the stick on the side of the stream opposite of the rock. B. 3. Walk along the shore at right angles to line AB. Take any number of steps, 50 for example, and place another stick there. C. 4. Continue walking along the shore in the same direction for as many steps as, in this case, 50 more. Put a stick there. D. 5. Walk away from the stream at right angles to the line BD. When 
you can sight a straight line over 6C to the rock on the far side, stop, and mark your spot E. 6. Measure line DE to get the width of the stream. Compass method. If you know how to use a compass, you can use it as a tool for measuring widths, such as the distance across a stream. 1. While standing on one side of a river, B. Locate a rock or other object directly up opposite of you on the far shore, A. 2. Take your bearing by pointing the direction of travel area on your compass at the rock and turning the compass housing until the needle lies over the ordinary arrow. Read the degrees, in, in this case, 120 degrees. At, add 45 degrees, for example, 120 plus 45 equals 165. Set your compass as the new bearing, in this case, 165 degrees. 4. Walk along the shore, pointing the direction of travel arrow towards the rock. With this compass needle, again, lies over the orienteering arrow. Stop and mark your spot. C. Distance CB is the same as the width of the river. Measuring time. Most of us look at a clock, watch, or cell phone when we want to know the time or how long something will take to complete. You can also estimate the time of day by noticing where the sun is in the sky. Obviously, the day has just started and the sunrise in the morning. The sun is directly overhead at midday, and when it sets, night is about to begin. To estimate shorter times, counting 1 1000, 1 2000, 1003 will give you about one second per number. Practice counting by using a watch that displays seconds. Pace yourself so that when you reach 1 1030, about 30 seconds will have passed. The next requirement is requirement 4B. Demonstrate how to use a handheld GPS unit, GPS app on a smartphone, or other electronic navigation system. Use GPS to find your current location, a destination of your choice, and the route you will take to get there. Follow that route to arrive at your destination. GPS receivers. For many years, Scout used nothing but maps and compasses to get around. More recently, GPS receivers have become more popular and affordable ways to navigate. A GPS receiver is an electronic tool that uses satellite signals to calculate its location anywhere on Earth. With it, you can determine your current position and speed, the distance traveled, and the direction in which you are going. A GPS unit will also estimate your elevation above sea level. By recording where you have traveled, you can retrace your steps and find your way home. Some GPS units can be programmed with topographic maps showing your route and providing constant updates of your progress. GPS technology is also built into smartphones and in-car navigation systems, so you may have access to several ways to use the technology. To understand how GPS receivers work, you need to understand longitude and latitude, and how places on the planet are described numerically. Longitude and Latitude Lines of longitude and latitude form a grid around the globe that can be used to specify the location of any spot on Earth. GPS systems uses the grid system to identify your location, as well as waypoints between you and your direction. To begin understanding longitude and latitude, look at a peeled orange. Notice how the segments of the orange fit together. The lines between the segments all touch at the top of the orange and again at the bottom. Choose one of the orange segment's lines and call it zero. From there, you can number the other lines around the orange. One, two, three, four, and so on. This will tell you how many segment lines you are away from the zero segment line. On a globe, map makers have drawn lines that are similar to the lines separating the segments of your peeled orange. These are Mediterranean's lines of longitude. They, cov they coverage come together at North Pole and the South Pole. Just as there are 360 degrees in a circle, there are 360 degrees of longitude. The median of longitude marked zero, also called the prime meridian, is one that passes through the Royal Observatory at Greenwich, England. 
On a map of the world, the Mediterraneans of longitude will tell you how far you are from the prime meridian. New York City is about 74 degrees west of the prime meridian. Seattle is 122 degrees of longitude west of the prime meridian. Go back to the peeled orange and imagine drawing a line around the center of it crossing all the segments at an equal distance from the top and from the bottom. That line is the equator of the orange. Earth's equator is an imaginary line that is equally far from the North Pole and the South Pole. Equator comes from the word equal. The equator also serves as zero-degree latitude lines, drawn parallel to our number to the poles. The North Pole is 90 degrees of latitude north of the equator. The South Pole is 90 degrees south. Degrees, minutes, and seconds. To show detailed locations of each degree of longitude and latitude is divided into 60 minutes, and each minute of longitude and latitude is divided into 60 seconds. A position on the globe is located longitude first, followed by long, long, latitude. For example, the coordinates of latitude and longitude from the summit of Baldy Mountain, the highest point on Philmont Scout Ranch, in New York, Mexico, are 36 degrees, 37 inches, 45 north, 105, 12, 48 west. That means the hikers standing on top of Baldy are 36 degrees, 37 minutes, 45 seconds north of the equator, and 105 degrees, 12 minutes, and 48 seconds west of the prime meridian. Being specific and precise, if you say that you live in the M Manhattan, you can also mean one of the parts of New York City, but you could also mean a place in Colorado, Florida, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Montana, or Nevada. Scientists don't like that kind of impression. That's why they're used numbers like those described here. UTM system. Another grid for identifying locations is the Universal Transavir Medicare system. It divides the globes in much of the same way as longitude and latitude, but uses meters for measurements rather than degrees, and minutes and seconds. Many maps show the UTM grid in greater detail. UTM zones extend from the North Pole to the South Pole. Each of the 60 zones covers 6 degrees of longitude. The zones are numbered from west to east, beginning at 180 degrees longitude, the opposite side of the globe from the prime meridian. The map at the right shows the UTM zones for the continental United States. As you can see, those zones are very large. To pinpoint your location, you need to figure out where you are within a particular zone. That's where easting and northing comes in. Easting. The measurement tells you how far east of the UTM zone's western edge you are in meters. The north-south Mediterranean in the center of the UTM zone has a value of 500,000 meters, so a coordinate to the east of the Mediterranean will have a value of more than 500,000, while coordinating to the west of that median will have a value of less than 5,000. Estimating measurements start from the middle of the zone because that's the zone the vary in width from the equator to the poles. Northing. This measurement tells you how far north of the equator you are in meters. Let's look again at the Baldy Mountain at Philmont Scout Ranch. The top of the Baldy Mountain has those you these UTM coordinates. Zone 13, 480929E, 453843N. Baldy Mountain is located in Zone 13. 480929E indicates the location of the summit, 480,929 meters, in relation to the Zone 13 Mediterranean. Slightly west corner, in other words, that's the easting value. 45843N means the Bali summit is 4,053,843 meters north of the equator. That is the northern value.
Most GPS receivers can accept data either in longitude and latitude formats or as UTM coordinates. Simply enter longitude and latitude numbers for a set of UTM coordinates. For Baldy Mountain, for example, and the GPS will give you the directions of travel and the distance to the destination. Likewise, asking a GPS receiver to show you present locations will bring up the number of UTM coordinates of longitude and latitude that can be located on a map to show you exactly where you are. The next requirement is requirement 5A. Identify or show evidence of at least five kinds of native plants found in your local area or a campsite location. You may show evidence by identifying fallen leaves or fallen fruit that you find in the field, or as part of a collection that you have made, or by photographs that you have taken. Plants. From grasses pushing through cracks to a city sidewalk to ancient farms covering a mountainside, plants are vital to the world. Plants help all animals because they release oxygen, which animals need to survive. Plants protect the land too. Their roots help keep soil from washing away. Leaves sow rain as it falls, giving it time to seep into the earth instead of running off. Fallen trees, shrubs, and grasses enrich the soil as they decay. Plants provide shelter and food for wildlife. A dead tree can be important to animals as roosting site, a place to build nests and a source of food. People use plants in many ways too. We eat fruits, vegetables, grains, and nuts, all of which come from plants. Lumber from trees goes into our buildings. Paper, medicines, and thousands of other products are possible only because of plants. Trees provide shade in yards and city parks, cooling the environment and offering us places to close to home where we can relax and play. Forests are a perfect place to hike and camp. Roaming deep into a backcountry forest allows us to get far from roads, buildings, and crowds of people. Common Plants Black-Eyed Susan Mountain Bluebell Common Dandelion Prickly Pear Cactus Indian Paintbrush Wild Strawberry Common cat Cattail Blue Columbine Sunflower Honeysuckle Yarrow Seagull Lily Bull Thistle Oxy Daisy Blackberry Red Clover Wood Fern Blue Lipin, Service Berry, Water Hemlock. Poisonous or Hazardous Plants Nature is beautiful, but it can also be dangerous. Many plants that grow in your neighborhood, in local parts, or in camping areas your troop visits can hurt you if you touch them or eat them. Some can even kill you. The most common plants you need to watch out for are poison ivy, poison oak, and poison susmac. Touching them can cause an irritating rash. Ingesting them or breathing in smoke from burning plants is even more serious. Most other plants are only dangerous if ingested. That's why you should never eat wild plants, including mushrooms, unless you can positively identify them. Often, poisonous plants look similar to edible plants. See the first aid chapter for information on treating exposure to or ingestion of poison plants. Poison ivy, grown as a trailing vine, climbing vine, or shrub, has seen uh, stems of three leaves that are somewhat shiny and smooth surface and relatively smooth edges. Leaves turn bright red, yellow, or orange in the fall. Has a hairy vine, common in wooden areas, especially along bricks in the tree line where sunlight peeks through. Poison oak, grows in a woody vine or shrub, has stems of three leaves, rarely five or more, with toothed or loaded edges like the oak leaves. Leaves turn bright red in the fall. Common in wooden areas, dry barrens, and coastal plains, not tolerant of heavy shade. Poison susmac, grows in a small tree or a tall shrub, has leaves of 7 to 13 long, slender leaves with no hair on the stems. Leaflets appear in pairs, except for the leaflet at the end of the stem. Leaves turn deep red in the fall. Restricted to swampy, boggy areas. Often confused with more common forms of susmac. Other poisonous plants. Here are some common plants that you may encounter at camp or in your neighborhood. 
Stinging needle has hollow hairs called tramnomes that inject chemicals that cause a stinging sensation. Westria causes nausea, vomiting, cramps, and diarrhea when ingested. Foxglove can cause heart failure as well as nausea, vomiting, cramps, diarrhea, and mouth pain when ingested. Can be fatal. Lily of the valley causes nausea, vomiting, mouth abdominal pain, cramps, diarrhea, and irregular heart rate when ingested. Roadward heron causes vomiting, diarrhea, headaches, muscle weakness, vision problems, and a burning sensation in the mouth when ingested can be fatal. Laxpur causes digestive problems, nerve damage, and de depuration can be fatal. Water hemlock causes painful, violent convulsions and can lead to death. Jimson weed causes derelium incoherence, coma, extreme thirst, and slight problems can be fatal. Pokeweed causes stomach pain, nausea, vomiting, bloody diarrhea, and low blood pressure. Nightshade causes cramps, irregular heartbeat, tremors, and paranomia. Thank you for listening to this week of the Scouting Guide Podcast. Next week, join us and we will still be going over the second class rank requirements.